Welcome back, everyone. You're watching We Heart Therapy, the special series EFT Talk. I'm your host, Dr. Annabelle Bugatti, licensed marriage and family therapist and certified EFT therapist here in fabulous Las Vegas. And we'd like to welcome back to our show, we have Dr. Ting Lu. She's an EFT trainer out of the Philadelphia Center for EFT, as well as the Asia Center for EFT. And she's joined us today so that we can talk about our special topic, Spotlight on Diversity. And we're going to talk about working with the Asian American community or um, Asian communities. However, we're going to we're going to talk about that. So uh, we'll go ahead and jump right in. So thank you again for being back with us today, um, Dr. Liu, and we just appreciate you taking the time. And so you know, it's it's important as part of our ethical standards, part of our practice to maintain cultural awareness and diversity. And, and of course, no matter what area you live in. You know, there are diverse peoples um, reaching into more and more parts of the United States. So let's start out with just some basic, how do we, how do we ethically and, and sensitively broach the idea of culture and ethnicity and how that might be an important part of our work and what we need to know? How, how would we ask the client that? Well, I think first is that I don't pretend to know something I don't. Right. And it's always good to be humble and to be genuine and to be open about who we are ourselves as therapists, what we don't know and what concerns us. You know, for example, we, we use the term Asian American, but I actually has one time that I, I referred to a, a Asian client as Asian American. And then this person look at me and say, I am American. Why do you have to call me Asian American? So that's very different from my experience and I was surprised by it. But then I also learned from that experience that in the future, I will always check in with client and ask them how would I like, to, how would they like me to refer them to, right? And how, would they, how, how do they identify themselves culturally and in terms of ethnicity? That's and a great. I would always use their term and see what they prefer. And sometimes if we notice that they, there may be some cultural identity issues or that may be the issue in the family that caused the conflict, I may follow it up, you know, to understand why this is their preference or what has been their experience. But I always start with checking in and just follow their lead. That's a great idea. So, so don't assume that we know how the client identifies culturally. And so you're saying really just check in with them and come from a place of, you know, again, as therapists, we don't know everything. And, you know, how would you identify your cultural background um, and, you know, help me maybe with how that's an important part of our work and, you know, how that may show up in your relationship or your life, you know, in any way that you'd like to discuss. But um, I love that idea of just really coming to them and, and don't assume that, oh, because you, you look Asian, you must identify as Asian American or whatever, you know, um, that's, that's terrific. And I think that's a mistake that, um, and, and it's an innocent mistake. I mean, nobody means any harm, but that's the thing is, is we also can't claim ignorance. So we certainly don't want to do harm by assuming. So that's, that's great. A great yeah. strategy. And so, then, um, can I add one more thing? And I think that the other thing I will also pay attention is don't assume that people from the same cultural background will share similar values. 
Mm. So I think that each client has their own individual uh, differences and their mm-hmm. own beliefs. So mm-hmm. it's a danger for it's dangerous for us to group people by their cultural background too. Yeah. So on one hand, we want to be culturally sensitive and be respectful. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we also want to leave room for individual differences. Right. So it's it's almost like be sure that we avoid. The trap of stereotyping in a way that we don't kind of pigeonhole them into assuming that all oh because you identify as Chinese you must think like other Chinese that I've had and that's really good and so would it be so an EFT would it be good maybe in the assessment sessions to ask the client to help us understand you know some of their values that are important um, that show up in the relationship or, or in their life that I need to be aware about? Yes, definitely. And I also do this as a part of uh, assessing attachment histories. Because sometimes when we work with an immigrant, there is first generation, second generation, people who were born and raised out of the United States and come here after they, you know, their adult life. So those experiences may be very different. So when I assess their attachment history, I always put in this, you know, questions about uh, is there any belief, there's any family conflict due to uh, the immigration and, you know, what's their immigration background, you know, who decide and, you know, um, what's their experience, you know, in this culture and what's their connection with their culture of origin. I love that. That's a fantastic question. What's your connection with your culture of um, heritage? That is an amazing question. Um, Definitely. I'm making notes. (laughs) So, and this applies for not just, you know, the Asian community, but, but any cultural background is just to, you know, find out how did their family come to America? What was the immigration process like? Who made the decision? And oftentimes, you know, a lot of the clients that I see, of the younger clients, they're the children of parents that made the decision to immigrate. And a lot of times one person came first and the family followed later. Um, But some of the older clients were ones that immigrated um, themselves. And of course their, their experiences are all very, very different. Um, So I love that idea of just not assuming, you know, having that open mind and that also helps us avoid the trap of stereotypes and bias, all those things we need to get away from. It's really about creating safety, but, you know, we want to understand, but in a way that doesn't sound like, you know, we're completely inept or that we've just stereotyped them, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't know what I don't know, but obviously I know your cultural background is going to be a little bit different than mine and I want to know Mm -hmm. what I need to know about that you know what's important help educate me yeah and then I also that and I also think that knowing that really helped me to validate their experience and some of the survival strategies they use because they do have to survive in a new environment where they don't have much support you know they're basically on their own and when they're under so much stress and sometimes there's this legal issues with, you know, the INS, you know, they have always on the run. And those all affect their availability and their accessibility and also their responsiveness to their loved one. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. So depending on what's happened in their life and, and maybe what their immigration status is, that could affect their survival 
instincts that may kick online and make it harder for them to be emotionally present or available. That's which right. Is that's going to be big. So you now you do go to Asia and you do train, um, you know, the community over there. So can you help us understand how that community might be different in terms of emotional expression? I mean, mm-hmm. we, we do know that from attachment science that attachment needs are universal. So that's that's across all cultures, but how might attachment show up differently in in this particular culture and Mm -hmm. and the expressions of emotions? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I I, I really like the point you're making because my experience is really true that the attachment need is universal and the feeling, the emotional experience is also similar. But what's different is the expression. It's the expression of emotion, it's the expression of vulnerability, it's the expression of attachment need. So I think one thing I learned, I don't think it's just Asian culture, but from a lot of collaborative uh, culture that Mm -hmm. they don't look at individual happiness as a goal for life. Right? They look at the harmony, they look at the game of the group, and then they try not to disrupt the big group. So mm-hmm. when you work with a client from that culture, for them to express their need or to express their negative emotion, come with social consequence. Mm-hmm. It's a value. That's wrong. That's selfish. Right? That's uh, dist- dist- destructive. So for them, it's not just whether or not I want to, or I have ability or experience to, but it's all, it also comes with some social consequences. So mm-hmm. I think the challenges and the roadblock is stronger. Mm-hmm. That's, oh, that's so interesting. So I hear you saying that, you know, for the Asian culture, it's, it's kind of taught and more in collectivist cultures, and, and you made a lovely point about that. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the difference between collectivist versus individualistic cultures, um, collectivist is more groupthink, thinking about the family unit, the group unit, the community. You know, it's not pursuit of self. You know, we don't talk about the self. And so the way I've seen this show up in the therapy room with my couples is, you know, often, let's say I have a interracial couple and one happens to be from the Asian culture, they'll often say, you know, well, what I think is not important. It's, you know, you know, it, it comes across as almost submissive, like, I don't want to make them upset. You know, I, I wasn't taught, you, you just don't do that. You know, you don't talk about your needs. Mm-hmm. So it feels like it could be a little bit of an uphill battle when you're trying to That's right. show them a different way. So can you tell us more about, about that? I think that, first of all, not to make them feel like we want to use a cookie cutter to change them. And don't make them feel like we disrespect their cultural belief or we disagree with that. I think that's the first, um, the most important things that I, I always made it clear to my client is that, you know, I really believe that this is important to you. And that's how you identify your, that's part of your identity too, Mm -hmm. right? And then I go with the struggle. I go Mm -hmm. with the struggle. Part of it is the role responsibility, right? That your responsibility in the family, you, um, 
uh, not to be selfish, your obligation, you know, those are very important to you and something you are proud of. And at the same time that you want to be happy, right? You want to be taken care of, you are exhausted. So you don't know what to do or how to balance the two is that if I go with my exhaustion, then I somehow let someone down, right? I'm not being responsible here. But if I continue to push myself, my body is screening out for help. But you never had someone come to you and ask you, what can I do for you? Right? So that can be put into the couple's relationship is that now you have a partner, right? Your partner is here. Your partner is available to you. But this is the first time in your life that someone asks you, how can I help you? What do you need? Mm -hmm. So part of it is unfamiliar. So it's scary. But part of it is really the longings. So that's yeah. how I usually go in is to present this as the two reality that they are fighting. I love that. So you, you make two really amazing points right here. And the first one was so important about not using a cookie cutter to, you know, and, and, you know, of course, EFT, we're very open and, and accepting and empathic, but at the same time, it still feels like we in some ways have a general cookie cutter idea of what emotional closeness and secure connection and bonding looks like. That's so right. And what a good relationship should be like. Yeah. And so it's, it's going to be very tempting for us to feel like we need to fit them into that box. And then we lose some of, you know, their own cultural expression, some of their own personality. And then of course, knowing that if we fight, if we try to force them into something like that, it's never going to stick or hold because it's not natural to them. So right. the way that you kind of approach that is to really honor where they're coming from, their cultural experience. You validate that. Of course, we say in EFT, validate the heck out of it. You know, you're not used to doing this. You always think about the children, the family, you know, being strong. I've got to stay strong and keep everything going. But then you're exhausted. Your body physically is not going to let you continue this way. You know, and it, and so the idea of saying what you need or asking for help just feels completely out of the question, you know. So going, so let's talk about, you know, so the part of them in, in this particular community when it comes to asking for needs or those emotional expressions and not wanting to put them in a cookie cutter, you know, help help teach us how their cultural expressions might be different because I want to make sure that like myself and I'm sure a lot of you out there that we understand how their expressions might be different. And that way it's, you know, cause sometimes it feels like, Oh, they're only doing like, they're kind of doing it maybe because their expressions are different. And then there's that temptation. Let's put them back into the box, back into the box. And we feel like if we don't get them to fit into our idea of secure bonding, then we're not really doing EFT and it's going to be bad. It's going to fall apart. <laughs> well, that, that, that's, that's really the therapist's struggle is that, you know, should we stay genuine to the model or are we really doing EFT if we, we don't talk about vulnerability, we don't label our experience with the feeling words, right? So I think two things I want to share here. And I think that's one is really to borrow clients' words. 
you know, because they all have their way of expressing needs and feelings. And some of them may not be as overt, may not be as clear, and it may not fit into our stereotype that this is a way they express their feelings. But then to learn from them, to check in with them, to use the words they use, I think that's the first door that we can get in. You know, mm-hmm. for example, they may never say, oh, I'm so exhausted, so I really need uh, someone to lean on or someone to take care of me or to comfort me. Some people would never say that, right? But they will say, well, I'm so tired. Can you just do the dishes? Right? That's often the expression that they made this. This is your job. You're supposed to do this. And we should be fair and divide the responsibility. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, that's the way they express that. Kind of task oriented. Can you that's do right, that? That's right. That's mm-hmm. right. And then it's not very vulnerable, right? Mm-hmm. It's about your fault. You fail or you neglect to do something. So it's not about my need or my vulnerability. It's about you fail to do your job, right? Mm-hmm. So this is a time that I will start with their words. I just say, so when you are tired, then you get mad because you sort of feel like you do your part and your partner didn't. And then when you try to say, I'm so tired, I really need you to step up to the plates and do your part. It's really hard for you to share your exhaustion, right? It's easier for you to point out the mistake or the things they failed to do. And I really hear that, right? I really hear that that's a different way to say, I'm too tired to do it all by myself. So I go in with attachment, attachment needs, but then I also use this as a, a cue to sort of access some of the vulnerabilities. And one thing is really to slice it thinner. Like don't use big words is that, so you are very tired, you're feeling really sad, you're crying inside. You know, those are the words that's maybe too strong. Right. So borrow their words as an entry door and then go in gradually. And then sometimes, especially for couples who are not used to express their feeling and needs, I always slice it thinner. Sometimes if you use a metaphor, you use a sun description, it's better than just using the word fear or sad. Yeah, so even if they use a word that sounds more cognitive, mm-hmm. um, that's okay. It's, it's a word that we can use as an entry point to join with them. And, and we know as the therapist, we know, you know what they're getting at. And right. so even though they may use more of a, a reactive emotional word or a cognitive label for an emotion, we can still use that. And that's right. We That's shouldn't right. go in too far and too fast and use too strong of words. We just, the entry point is to join them at their language and use That's that. Right. And I love the way that you put that into the cycle. That was amazing. <laughs> but then, you know, there, I, I want to tell you a funny story because I always remember the story. I have a client who lived in a terrible, uh, high crime rate neighborhood. So something bad happened to her family. And then so she came into therapy and keep telling me, you know, the detail of this incident. So I can see that she was very rattled by this incident. So I turned to her and I just say, so when you think about what might happen to your kids, you got really scared. She said, no, I'm not scared. I grew up in this neighborhood. I know how to deal with it. They should know too. But then she continued 
with the detail of this story. And then I say, okay, so you're not scared, but then you worry for them. She said, no, you know, they are 16 years old, so they don't have, I don't have to worry for them. They need to learn to take care of themselves. And then, so she continued with the same story with all those details. So I know it bothers her. And then, so I try fear, I try worry, and she didn't like it. So at the end, I say, so when you know this could happen, you want them to be cautious. And then she said, yes, I think we should always be cautious. This is what happened in our society. We need to be cautious. But then for me, this is the entry door, right? She go with a caution. And for me, that still caution is in the same category of fear. But then she liked the word because caution is less vulnerable. So I go in with it, we use caution and we talk about caution, the need to be cautious her whole life because she's on her own, right? She always had to take care of everything and prepare herself for everything because nobody will, will help her. And then so several sessions later, I think it was so cool, she came back to me, she said, you know, I remember several weeks ago, you, you asked me if I was scared. I realized that I have never allowed myself to be scared my whole life. And then, you know, it's really interesting because being cautious is about being scared. Yeah. Right? So I think that was so cool because I didn't force her because I know her caution is my fear, but I borrow her words. Why should I get into a power struggle and fight with her about wording? Oh, right. Yeah. But then the point is for her to access that part to assess the need to be cautious because she's alone and she's scared. And then she did it at the end. So it's like you planted a seed. And I love that if we try to, again, force the client into that cookie cutter, then we could end up engaging in a little bit of a power stroke. No, no, you're really scared. Why would you just use the word fear? <laughs> you know, it's like, no, no, you know, but sometimes. Well, to shame yeah. then. I think the worst yeah. thing is that you, they could feel ashamed that you say, oh. well, but my fear is that you just don't want to admit you're scared. I mean, yeah. that's shaming too, right? Yes, yes, that's so important. And that's the last thing that we want to invoke. And I love how you say her word caution is the same as what we understand as fear. Mm -hmm. And why is it, it's not so important to get in the struggle over the use of the word. Mm -hmm. And I love how you went in kind of like deeper, you know, like, oh, it sounds like you were scared. She didn't accept that. So you sliced it thinner, worry, she didn't accept that and you sliced it, you know, getting even thinner, but you found the word that she could grab onto. And in some ways it planted a seed and she was able to come back later and say, you know, actually maybe I was a little scared. That's right. That's amazing. That's right. But, it but took also there's another strategy because I also had an experience that sometimes I tried to slice it thinner several times mm -hmm. and then nothing worked. Like they didn't like any of the words I choose. And then mm -hmm. this is a time that I would really collaborate with them. And I would just go in and I just say, so it must be really frustrating that I just don't get it, right? Mm -hmm. I can't find a way to sort of art, to understand, to show that I understand your experience. So mm -hmm. help me out here. How would you describe this experience? Mm -hmm. And one time I had a very tough client who doesn't like the word even caution. You mm -hmm. know what she told me? She said, I just, in certain situation, I pay more attention. So okay. for, for her, paying more attention is the word she described caution or fear, right? So again, this is great because she gave me an entry door. 
Mm, right? And then yeah. what I learned as a therapist is that this client is really defensive if I were to push her too hard into vulnerability. So as a therapist, I need to adjust my pace. When I go in, I need to go, as, uh, go in gradually. I need to go in slowly. And I need to really you know, pay attention to her, be in good attunement with her, and then let her feel like she has the power and she can take the lead. Otherwise, yeah. you know, she will keep fighting me and arguing with me. Yeah. Um, you know, then that's not going to do us any good. It's that need for her to feel safe. And, you know, I like how you say some, sometimes when we go in with the really deep expressions of primary emotion, it's too intense, too vulnerable for mm -hmm. them. And so they need us to kind of back up a, a lot sometimes and use something that they can. And it's okay if it's not a primary emotion label that, that we would like to, again, cookie cutter, um, but it's still an entry door. You know, it's still that's something right. we can use and work with, mm -hmm. and that's important. And with the expressions of, of emotions now in the, in the Asian community, how is emotional expression maybe a little bit different? I think it's more mild. It's more subtle. It's not subtle. as dramatic and as overt. You know, one time I took my daughter back, to, back home and then she was sitting, she, she was watching a movie with a group of children. It was so funny to see the differences in, in their expression because my daughter grew up here. So as they were watching the movie and my daughter was like, ha, 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 ha. She has that very, you know, dramatic way of laughing. And the rest of the group, they just smile with no noise. So that's a good example is that when people express their emotion in a covert or very mild way, it doesn't mean they feel less strongly. I think that's one thing I always have to remind myself that a quiet one or someone who don't complain doesn't mean that they feel less pain. Right. right. And when you're working with those expressions, so and they, this isn't even about pursuing or mm -hmm. withdrawing, mm -hmm. this is about the cultural expression. That's so. Right. Again, it's like, as you're saying this, I hear some of the like EFT warnings that, oh my gosh, like we, we want them to be able to express mm -hmm. themselves in a way that's clear. And if they're so subtle and we learn that subtleties don't always get the message across clearly, right. how can we work with that? So again, we don't force them into that cookie cutter of this needs to be a much more overt, direct emotional mm -hmm. expression, mm -hmm. and kind of work with where they're at, but make sure the signals are more clear. Yeah, I think one thing that's a challenge for myself is to really be flexible and be very uh, attuned to them. Is that I may not understand the meaning of that expression, <clears throat> but I notice a change. I notice there's a shift in their voice. You know, there is a very quick, you know, change on their expression. Then I check in. I may not understand what I mean, or I may not understand the significance of it. But I notice there's a change. So I always zoom in whenever I see any cue, right? And then sometimes if they say no, you know, I, I look down not because I was upset. I just look down because I see something on the carpet, right? If they deny that, and I would let it go for the first time or maybe the second time, but then if I see there's a pattern and then I notice, I say, you know, maybe this is a coincidence, but 
you know, several times I noticed that when she started talking about the conflict with your mother, you look down on the carpet, right? So what happened to you as you hear her talking about all those horrible things that your mother did to her? That what happened to you when you hear her anger towards your mother? What happened here? So I point out what I observed mm -hmm. and I use evocative responding to mm -hmm. poke to see if I can get something from him, mm -hmm. right? But then if, the, if he become quiet, then I will zoom in, I say, so it's really hard to talk about this, isn't it? That you look away, you look down, because it's hard for you to enjoy, engage in the conversation. Is that true? And I use conjecture. Wow, that's really good. That's really good. So sounds like we, we really have to pay more attention to the, the physical expression because they're much more subtle and that's okay. And we don't have to force them at, you know, by stage three to have these overt expressions. Um, but we can help kind of tease apart what we see and, and maybe heighten those enough to where the signals become a little more clear, at least with each other. But we That's really right. have to pay attention to the small subtleties. That's right. And then the other thing that I sort of make it easier for myself is that sometimes I don't focus on the way they express it. Sometimes I focus on the end result. Is that when you do that, like for example, I have an older couple, they, they don't hold hand in front of me because it was not culturally appropriate, I guess. So when he was really upset and she wanted to reach out to comfort him, she wouldn't even pat him on the hand. So she used her fingertip to like poke his fingertip. That's how mild it is, right? Mm -hmm. So she did that twice and I noticed that. So I asked her, I did not assume that I know what I mean, right? So I asked her, I noticed that when he tear up, you use your fingertip to touch his, his. What are you trying to tell him here? What happened to you when you do that? And she said, I want him to know that it's okay. He doesn't have to learn to be someone different. He doesn't have to tell me that he loves me. I know that. I see his struggle. Mm -hmm. right? So she was able to say something that he wasn't. So he was still quiet. And people thought that I would be done with the enactment because she showed forgiveness and acceptance, right? And then he's still this person who doesn't know how to express e emotion. So I turned to him and I just say, when you hear her saying that it's okay, I know this is not who you are. You don't have to do something that you're not good at. I understand that. When you hear her say that, when you see that one more time, she put your need and your comfort in front of her own. Even though this is very important to her, even though she have always wanted this from you, but just because it made you uncomfortable, she said, that's fine. How was it to be loved so deeply and always be put first? in someone's life. How was it for you? And then he was bawling, right? Because, you know, even though he may still not say the things that we expect him to say, but for him to be touched this way, for her to see his tears because of what she did, it was really meaningful for her. And that made all the, she told me that it made all the sacrifice worth it. Hmm. 
right? So this is a way I like, you don't have to have the words, but you can still connect on the different level. Right. But how do we help make the signals more clear? Because I've had this come up with some of my interracial couples mm-hmm. where, you know, they weren't taught to express vulner- vulnerability or emotions. Mm-hmm. And we come in and we do it in session. And for them, it's like, okay, great. You, you in some ways did the work for us by setting up these enactments and stuff. And now my husband knows, mm-hmm. so I don't need to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. After, after we're done with therapy, I can, we can keep mm-hmm. on going back the way we were before mm-hmm. we came in. And I, I, you know, I'm trying to teach them that, you know, show them again, the end result is feeling connection when you do this, but at the same time, they're like, well, that's good enough, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. But I think that's a really, really important question because in some ways, you know, they trust you and they are trying to do, try to risk in therapy. But at the same time, the flip side is that they don't think they can do it without you, Mm -hmm. right? So it's like, it's not theirs. Or they don't think it's necessary. Like you help clarify things and that's all we need. And that's right. Or they don't even feel that they they need that or they can benefit from, right? So sometimes, again, I don't get into power struggle with them. So Mm -hmm. I don't argue with them whether or not they need it or not, right? I just tell them that, that, okay, so maybe most of the time you don't need it. But what if that when you are having a bad day, what if that you're going through some crisis and then you want to be able to ask for what you need or you want to be able to offer your comfort and support, how would you do it in your way, right? Ask them to think about that. You don't have to do it my way mm-hmm. because your way is something you can do. And then they say, well, I would just tell her that you can come to me. And I just say, okay. So how has that worked? Because in the past, it doesn't work, right? Mm-hmm. At this time, we already reflect the cycle. They know that this is a part of their cycle, that the other person doesn't see the invitation, right? So I said, so how was it? How did that, how did that work, right? And then if they can take the own up to the responsibility that this may not be the best way, and then this is a time couple can problem solve together. Yeah. And I can ask them to help each other or articulate their need is that how come this doesn't work? How come when I say that you don't feel like I care for you and I, you, uh, I want to help you? Is there anything you need from me? So that can be another dialogue. It's a little bit task oriented, but you know, with our help, they don't have to have a very cognitive conversation. It can be a conversation that one person reach out for help and the other person uh, offer or respond. And I think probably the biggest struggle is in the reaching for help, you know, because again, you're fighting that cultural battle of we weren't taught that this was okay. And I have this with, with an interracial couple and it's, you know, someone from um, an, an, from the Asian community and a withdrawer. (laughs) So it's like a a very, very gentle pursuer um, and a withdrawer. And she says, you know, well, if I ask for help, it's like I'm asking for pity. If I ask for reassurance and and it's like the spotlight's on me and and maybe someone would think I'm weak for wanting Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And so she doesn't. and, And I've gone over, you know, how does that get you what you need? And I've gotten her to open up in session and then when he offers reassurance, it helps and it feels better and her anxiety starts to dissipate and go away. But then when I ask about, are, 
are they practicing this at home? It's still like, mm-hmm. well, no, we, we still not, you know, mm-hmm. we're still not mm-hmm. talking about it because we don't, we feel like what we do in session is enough. Enough. <laughs> well, but I, I think that you actually raised another very important question, which is her internal working model of self. Mm-hmm. Right. So this is a time that maybe the positive experience of being taken care of in session make her feel temporarily enough. Right. Mm -hmm. But the bottom line is I will actually add another layer in session if I have a chance is for her to turn to him and ask, how does that make you feel about me when I ask for your help? Right? Did you think less of me? Did you look down on me? Did you see me as someone incompetent? How does that make you feel about me? Hmm. That's also asking for reassurance because that's what she's afraid of, right? Yeah. Right? Or, you know, how can I trust that you won't get tired of it? How can I trust that you don't see me as a burden? Yeah. Because I'm not always strong. That's asking for what you need from based on her um, internal working model. That's her worst fear, right? Her worst fear is that if I reach out and not only I will get rejected, but you know, I will be seen as someone dependent and incompetent. Yeah. And then I'll and be then, taken advantage of. And- that's right. I will be taken advantage of. He may not like me anymore. I may lose his respect. I may lose the status and he may know my weak point and he can use against me yeah. in the future. And I like how at the same time, the client will be like, oh, I don't need, I don't need reassurance. I don't need him to say nice things like I love you and, mm-hmm. you know, it's safe to trust. But then at the same time, she's in some ways kind of asked for it by poking and demanding that he come to her and just tell her that every, that he's not lying about anything or whatever, you know, and it's like, so in some ways she's still saying it would help me if you come to me and reassure me without actually being vulnerable. <laughs> but you then, know? you know, the, the thing you're saying that made me think of one thing is that sometimes what they're saying is that words are not enough, that mm-hmm. you can come to me and say all those good words, but if your action doesn't match, right, right, right then I don't, tr- I don't trust just words alone. Right. So, so that can be a refrain here is that, so what you want is not just those sweet words. You right. want him to prove it to you with right. action. Right. 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 And simultaneously for both of them, because the lack of words has been mm-hmm. a major deficit to the relationship. So coloring that with, you know, of course we all need the words. We all, we all need the actions to back up the words. Everybody needs that, but you know, helping them to change their cycle by recognizing we can't repeat the old, we don't talk to each other. I don't, you know, Oh, when I say, do you mm-hmm. read for your wife openly? Oh, mm-hmm. I think she knows. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, that same response. <laughs> oh, I think they know. Well, but then see, that's a good setup for enactment. If someone say, I think she knows, I say, that's great. Do you want to ask her that? Do you know I love you? Right. Mm-hmm. That can, again, be an entry point. So they'll yeah. tap into what they're saying to you, but just ask them to turn to each other. Because sometimes it's even hard, difficult for a couple to turn to each other. They like to talk to us. Yes. Right. So, so I, I think what, what I learned is that it doesn't matter which um, clients I work with from which you know, cultural background. I think one thing that's really important to me, if we can just sum up the conversation is one is really attunement that you need to know and then be humble, be flexible to learn from their experience 
their experience, their form of expression, and don't use your own stereotype or your own rules. Right. And don't force them into the cookie. That's category. right. That's right. And, and that's it right. doesn't mean that we're not doing EFT just because that's we are. Right. That's right. It's just strategy. Right, you're moving slowly. That you don't just use those big vulnerable emotional words to scare them. Right, you borrow their words. You change and adjust your pace, so it's not intimidating, and they they can gradually go into this new, you know, territory with you. Right, right. and, and then, their their expression may not be as overt as. Mm-hmm. You know, we we think of in traditional EFT, but you you said something about. You know, how would you express this in your way? So at at their place and helping them to maintain, Mm -hmm. you know, something that feels natural and normal, but Mm -hmm. is still Mm -hmm. reaching, Mm -hmm. still clarifying those signals. Yes. And then once they get give you the entry point, of course, you can use different EFT intervention, evocative responding, conjecture, heightening to help them access the feeling. And also one thing I learned with Asian clients is that if you can connect their feeling with their physiological reaction, sometimes it helps a lot because they may be able to describe that my stomach hurt or I have headache or my, my neck become really tight or I start to get sweat. Yeah. Right. So they are able to do that. And then I often use metaphor referred to like medical treatments or uh, some kind of procedures that they, 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 I think they accept as well accepted. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So really connecting with the physiological arousal that might be happening and, and that can be a good way of helping them to identify their internal experience. That's right. That's and right. you use a medic, the uh, metaphor of like medical procedures and stuff, and you found that quite helpful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like I would say people, like for example, after they understand their cycle, oftentimes clients feel that our relationship is good enough because we, we don't fight as much. So we don't need therapy anymore, right? Yeah. So this is a metaphor I often use is that now when you have a broken arm, like we put the casts on and now you thought everything was okay, but you still need rehabilitation, right? There's always this weak point that you need to know how to deal with it or how to use your arm differently. Yeah. Or yeah. For, for someone who like to give advice, I often say, you know, so when someone is bleeding, this is not a time to say to discuss the surgical procedure. You need to stop the bleeding first. Yeah. Right? So, so sometimes I use metaphor like that and they can relate really well. That's excellent. That's excellent. So, you know, to kind of tie a bow on everything, again, guys, when you have clients from any culture, you know, don't assume, avoid. I, I mean, we all kind of have a working model of, you know, what we understand from cultures, but come in as a blank slate and allow the client to fill that up, to, to write upon it and let you know this is how I would identify my, you know, cultural background. This is how I relate. This is how I express things. This is what I was taught, you know, and, and we don't have to force them into this, to the cookie cutter, you know, idea of overt emotional expression to be doing good and effective EFT, especially if it's completely not natural to their culture or their way of being. 
it's okay. <laughs> and we can use their even cognitive expressions of emotion as an entry point to get in. And, and we still understand. And as long as we understand, we can still work with it and help organize and then help to clarify, well, well what is your way or how would you in your own way express vulnerability or, you know, your need or worry or what, whatever it is. Um, so I just love that. And to really focus on attunement and really tune in and really pay attention physiologically. Um, you know, it's a good way to connect them to their emotional experience, but also tuning into the micro expressions is very helpful too. looking down at the floor or silence. You have so many wonderful ways of, of relating that. And this is just so eye opening guys. So I really hope that you found benefit from this. Now Ting, um, do you have, uh, workshops? Do you have training tapes that people can purchase? How do we find you? Well, I, most of my training tapes is in Mandarin Chinese, so they can go to www.asiaeft.com to find the, uh, the training material uh, information. And, um, Are any of them translated have... into English? <laughs> there are so many English material available, so I don't think they need me. <laughs> oh, oh, but you're so good. We want to learn from you. <laughs> um, and then also I'm doing a depression workshop in Asia. So basically they can find my training uh, tapes and also my training schedules on asiaeft.com website. And for my training in United States, they can go to www.philadelphiacenterforeft.org to find uh, my schedule too. Okay, perfect, perfect. And can they email you or get in touch with you through the Philadelphia EFT website? Yes, yes. they perfect. will be able to find my contact information either you know, on asiaeft.com or philadelphiacenter.eft.com. They will be easy, you know, uh, it'll be easy to find me. Perfect. And we're going to put links to that in the description for this video. So thank you again, Dr. Liu, for being with us. We really appreciate you being with us so much. And I hope, guys, that you really enjoyed this video. And make sure that you subscribe because more videos are on the way. Thank you.